Hey there, what's up? Welcome back to Cart Overflow. I'm your host, Gen Furukawa. Take a guess at what the top selling pastry in the world is. If you live in the US, you might not realize it's actually croissants. And today we're speaking with the executive team. It's really a really cool opportunity to speak with the CEO, the head of e-commerce and the head of growth, uh, the chief growth officer, all in one conversation talking about what they're doing with seven days. So seven days is a global brand. They do a billion dollars in sales. In the US, they're at $40 million, about two to three million of which is from digital. But we get into the weeds of how they're actually growing it. They have a lot of interesting, complex challenges. They're doing omnichannel, Amazon, Walmart, uh, grocery stores. Seven days, you go to any, any grocery store in your area, you're likely to find it. And I love how they're thinking about tying this all together, how they're working with digital strategies and offline like television or radio or billboards and how they're actually figuring out what the attribution of budget should be for marketing, what the cost per acquisition is and how they're actually gathering the data. Because you know that's challenging if you're selling through a retailer like Walmart or Amazon, they're not getting the data, but they are if they're getting it direct to consumer. So there's this, uh, the, the margins actually interestingly are maybe even better if they go through a retailer, but the trade-off is that they're not getting the data. So this is really cool. We have Jim Burns, Vishal Gandhi, and Chris Burns. It's hard to tell because they're all three on the call, and this is audio, obviously, but it everybody has such great insights, and I really enjoyed this. This was a special experience for me. I hope you enjoy it, too. All right, let's get into it. The origin of, of Seven Days, I mean, it dates back 30-plus. We Our company is Epta America. And we own the rights to the U.S. and Canada. But the the brand has been around, again, for three decades. Started out in Eastern Europe. And, you know, I think the the core core product for for seven days and for our our parent company based out in Eastern Europe is this sweet-filled croissant. So it's, it's... Fairly, fairly large, so satisfying, sweet-filled. It's, it's on the package side, so the company has invested a lot in, in shelf life technology, which is one of our, our core advantages that we bring to us in the U.S. And so, you know, the company's been around a while, has, has grown across many, many different countries. They're, they're in over 50 countries leading in this sort of sweet baked good segment, which I'll get into in, in more than half of those countries. And, you know, we, and I won't, won't bore you guys with the details, but but Jim and, and Chris and, and their family, they, they've had a longstanding relationship on the product development side, dating back to, to their father working with this company. And so that's how the relationship first started. And the opportunity came uh, to us about, Little, little over 10 years ago, right? And, and really things started jumpstarting, I would say six or seven years ago. But um, we, we knew that the product was successful in Eastern Europe and, and in other markets. And, and we felt like there was an opportunity to bring that brand and that specific item, the, the croissant first and foremost, to the US um, and, and Canada as well. But really US is our core focus. And so at retail, retail, seven days globally is a billion dollar brand. Yeah. Yeah. So so really large. Yeah. Large. You know, the company has over 10 factories globally. 
they operate at a, at a pretty, you know, gale. And we're able to, to leverage that expertise that they have. And then, you know, really from the consumer proposition side, we felt like this sweet baked goods category, this packaged sweet baked goods category, packaged bakery, commercial bakery, or other names for it, uh, we felt like there was an opportunity to bring a new innovative item. I'll use the word, you know, disrupt, you know, because it's, people understand that when it comes to innovation. But, you know, I think it, it was, it was a, a category that really hadn't seen very much innovation, really much new news. And, you know, they're on, on top of that, I'd say that there was this consumer behavior towards more uh, breakfast morning occasions in, in terms of consumption. And so given the push towards more breakfast morning occasions, given the fact that this category hadn't seen really much innovation, and we're talking about flavor innovations, sure, uh, maybe some packaging innovations, but really no new product innovations, right? And, and it's a category that encompasses uh, Hostess, which is a big brand name, Little Debbie, Krispy Kreme. So you got your donuts, you got your Twinkies, you got your cupcakes, uh, really kind of more in the in the snacks, kind of sweet snack space. And so as a player globally in croissants, we felt like it was a really good opportunity, a really good story for us in, in the U.S. Right. And you, know, you couple that with our, our shelf life technology, you know, we felt like we had a really good product, product offering to bring to the U.S. And, and Jim, I'll let you continue there. One of, and yeah, just to build on one point there, one of the key insights that we looked at was, you know, croissants are actually the number one piece. Pastry is big in the U.S., right? Just in general. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been big within the convenience channel, which is kind of our bread and butter channel and has been for a long time. Pastries are also big throughout, you know, grocery, et cetera. And so one of the insights was croissants are number are the number one pastry in the world, yet the U.S. is definitely far behind Europe in terms of, you know, acceptance, adopted, you know, adopting croissants as one of the leading pastry items. And so, you know, I don't necessarily think that the reason the U.S. lagged behind is because people wouldn't actually think that it's just a matter of availability and, and that sort of thing. So within packaged baked goods, there basically was no croissant player before, before we entered the market. Interesting. Okay. I had no idea that seven days parent company was a billion dollars. That's crazy. But can you just help me get a little context in terms of how that breaks down? So you're like selling across the world, like America is the U S is a, an emerging market, but then Correct. like, yeah, how much is that? And then of that in the U S that you guys are focused on, what's the breakup in terms of retail versus direct to consumer e-commerce? Uh, great, great question and actually good timing because we pulled that information this morning. So of that billion at retail, roughly, we are about 40 million. And so that is up from maybe two or three, five years ago. So, you know, we're, we're about 15, 20 times the size that we were not too long ago. So we are one of the fastest growing markets within Chapita's portfolio. and. You know, I think for for frame of reference, they have such a stronghold 
in southern and eastern European countries. So I believe at retail, they do about 80 or $100 million in, in Greece. And so if you think about per capita consumption, Greece has 12, 12 million people maybe. And so, you know, the amount of croissant that the Greek population, seven days croissants, and maybe some of the other brands that Chapita manufactures, it is much higher than the consumption of Hostess brands here in the U.S. by an average consumer. You know, maybe, and so... So yeah, so uh, they're very strong in those countries, Greece, Poland, Bulgaria, Romania, Russia, but, you know, they've developed a nice size business in in Germany and the UK now as well. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of Sure. Yeah. And and what I'll add to that, Jen, is, is right now we, of that 40 million in the U.S., we're, we're probably going to end the year somewhere around 5% of that 40 million in digital. So still small, you know, we're, we're figuring things out and, and Chris is, is leading the charge when it comes to that. And, and we, we have a, a strategy in place. And, and the other, the other amazing thing, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard it from a lot of people is with 2020 and the reality of COVID and lockdowns, e-commerce creation accelerated by seven years, right? Depending Mm -hmm. on what you read. And so we've been able to capture that. We were already really focused on that, knowing full well that we needed to be there. And so we were able to, to capture that increase in penetration and demand. But really, you know, I think only now are we really starting to figure out how to think about digital as a multi-pronged strategy before it was only Amazon, like truly, right? And and a little bit of Walmart, but Walmart has accelerated and, and again, a lot of it because of what happened here. And so, you know, now we're thinking about digital more broadly and, and the core areas that we're really focused on still Amazon, right? They are by far still the sort of uh, line share in e-commerce sales overall, although, again, depending on what you read, Walmart may have eclipsed them with grocery sales. So Walmart is a place that we know we need to be, and they've continued to double down on, on investments with things like Jet.com that they've enveloped into their company. And so they're, they're a little bit far behind, but they're catching up, right? And so that we know we need to be. And, and the other area that I'm sure you've also been hearing a lot about is direct to, to consumer as well. So, uh, we've recently started focusing on, on Shopify, using the Shopify platform to reach consumers directly, and now really starting to experiment with ways to acquire those consumers directly on our own platform. And, and it, it actually did start the whole thought process of really having the Shopify uh, platform started because Walmart, who, again, we knew we needed to be a part of in in their marketplace, they had this partnership with Shopify. And we knew that if we joined Shopify, we would then gain access to Walmart consumers. Now, I know there's a few more Shopify-type players out there, big commerce being being another one of them. But not only, you know, once we started thinking about Shopify, did we think, okay, this will give us access to Walmart, which is very, very important to us. But how do we now 
just attract consumers directly to our site, have a great experience for them, and have them purchase directly through us. So, and, the, yeah. Go ahead, Michelle. No, I was going to say it, it was one of those things that evolved pretty quickly because we didn't, we were thinking Walmart through Shopify first and foremost, but then realized how big of an opportunity direct to, to consumer is. And literally over the past three months have started thinking about that as a bigger part of our digital e-commerce strategy. Mm -hmm. I wanted to just take a, cause I think this, you know, for, for purposes of this show, you know, we're, we are a, a food brand and we are a food brand with, that operates within a category that has typically low days of shelf life, right? And so we uh, actually have significantly more shelf life than our competitors. You know, it depends on, maybe it's twice as much. You know, we won't get into exactly how much more, but that- You're talking like two, two weeks versus a week? No, you're talking like, you're talking like maybe two months instead of a month. Got it, okay. So that competitive advantage was one of the real key insights and reasons that I had said, let's really double down into digital, right? Because we, we can make sense of the economics of shipping as a result of having a longer shelf life. And obviously digital, extremely important channel across categories. And I think food presents, you know, a, a little bit of a challenge and the shorter you get in terms of shelf life on the spectrum, the more challenging it becomes, right? Like the last thing to move online, I'm, I'm sure I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher this, but it would be like, right? <laughs> like eggs is, is a product type that I think um, will probably, uh, a higher proportion of sales will rest within the supermarket uh, as opposed to shifting online for eggs, right? Um, and so we're closer on, on the on that spectrum than a food product that has two years of shelf life. But, yeah, but because of our shelf life, we uniquely can be that. We can we can be a leader within sweet baked goods online because of our shelf life. And so that was one of the key insights that's driving you know a big push into digital and into e-commerce. Where where I think a little Debbie right probably is not focusing nearly as much of their attention because they have a shorter shelf. Yeah, mm. yeah. The, the the nuance the nuance there with how things are evolving is whether it's fulfilled by a warehouse or whether it's fulfilled by the actual store, right? So Walmart, for example, has both what they call marketplace as well as online pickup and delivery. Online pickup and delivery is direct from the store. So and that continues to be a, a big part of their overall, you know, digital universe, right? So, so it's still that you're shopping online, but you're, you're getting the products from a different place. And so I think to Jim's, what, what our product allows us to do relative to competitors is to really be at, a, at an advantage when it comes to fulfilling from the warehouse relative to the store, right? But you know, we as a, as a company are navigate as the retail universe is trying to navigate 
what this shopping experience will look like in the next six months, a year, two years. And, and I know, and, and Amazon is also thinking about that with their acquisition of, of Whole Foods, right? Which gives them access to actual retail locations, which then allows them to do online pickup and delivery. I know they're experimenting with actually Amazon specific stores. So, right, like that's an area where they don't fully have the, the retail advantage relative to a Walmart. So Walmart realizes that and is, is trying to focus a little bit more on that. And so we as a manufacturer are just trying to figure out where to go based on where they're going. Right. But yeah, as, as a food player, there, there is this sort of distinction and, and the advice, at least on one side of it, which is the warehouse side of it, is because we have a, a relatively better shelf life, we can compete better in that space. Yeah, got it. So just so I can make sure that I get it, what you're saying is you get two months to, to basically move product, which means that you have more lag time. You need to, you have more time to react so you can maybe have less inventory in warehouses or in an Amazon distribution center. And therefore your, your cash flow is freed up so that you can maybe invest in other places like marketing. And you could actually have more, see, here's, here's actually a little bit of a distinction. We can have more product in the Amazon warehouse so that they can fulfill customer orders more easily, right? Like we can ship into Amazon's warehouse, the ambient never needs to get touched or put in a freezer or anything like that. And so it allows a perfect example of where this would come into play is if it takes two weeks to ship our product to a customer, it's not going to go bad, right? Whereas a little Debbie, if that's the shipping time to ship to a remote part of Idaho, like, you know, they're not going to sell the product because it's going to get there when it's out of food. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But here's a rub that I'd be curious to hear about is as a consumer, like that, that, that's a huge advantage for you as a brand. Like you have two months to move product and therefore you can kind of like do your logistics accordingly. But as a consumer, what do people say? Like, Hey, I actually don't want a croissant. That's going to be good. And I say croissant, a croissant that's going to be good for two months. I actually just want it to go stale in two days. That way I know that it's fresh. Like, are you actually positioning the product in this sense that like, you, you have time, just keep it in the, in the closet. It'll be fine for, for two months. Or is that more of something that you have behind the scenes as an advantage? And then you're positioning the product to consumers in the same way that Hostess or Little Debbie's would like, hey, it's delicious, it's, it's easy, it's fast. Yeah, so I, and I'll take this one. I would say, you know, those are two kind of, as you pointed out, distinct categories. You have one, which is the, the fresh pastry, good for a couple of days, category and then you have the shelf stable pastry in our case we tend to skew to the latter so we we tend not to try to compete with the amazon fresh brands if you will the whole foods fresh croissant brands instead we do play up the you know the the long shelf life feature and the pantry packer if you will feature of our product to really compete with, you know, some of the, the staple household uh, name brands such as Hostess or Little Debbie's or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. I, so just to add to that, what I would say is what we've found is that 
we can both both can live both can live together and i think where where we especially last year saw a major advantage to our product is that people can purchase it and leave it there in their pantry right we're a pantry product for one to two months buy maybe a few of our items and not worry that it's going to expire Got it. Right, so. And the consumer experience, you know, the consumer experience on day one when the when the product arrives here, we'll be honest, it, it's different than going to your local French bakery and eating and, and getting a, a croissant from there, right? It is a different experience. Ours is a soft croissant. And so it's a, it's a different eating experience, but the great piece is that whether you're eating it the day that it arrives from Europe into our warehouse, or if you're eating it two months later, the taste is not very different and the taste is really great. It's just different than what you would sure. you know, expect from going to your local bakery and picking up the croissant. Yeah, that, I, I get it. That makes sense. Now, Vishal, I want to go back to something that you mentioned that you saw an opportunity. That, I mean, that the impetus to go with Shopify had a lot to do with the partnership of Walmart and Shopify. Uh, and I'm curious to learn a little bit about how you view the two different customers, like a customer that you might acquire through purchasing it at Walmart or HEB versus a direct-to-consumer. Because part of it is maybe you're seeing higher margins if you're going direct-to-consumer, you're getting the mm -hmm. customer data so that you can send them you know, cross-sells to you might like our bagel chips or whatever. And then also, I mean, you're, you're getting the customer versus Amazon and Walmart who are very protective of, you know, they bought on our marketplace. So therefore it's an Amazon customer. So can you just describe like how you're seeing that and how the two, you know, retail and e-commerce are playing together from your marketing and profit perspective? Yeah, I, I think the margin piece is a really interesting story, right? So for us, the direct to consumer is definitely more profitable, right? We don't we don't have the the middleman that that essentially we need to pay. Now, the, and it's also important, right? Especially with an Amazon and a Walmart because they have loyal consumers, and so for us, that is still most important because we want to get access to this broad set of loyal consumers, right? Between Amazon and Walmart, they, they probably reach maybe 80, 90% of US households, right? So, you know, I think that to us is, is still very, very important and why, you know, our, our focus is there as a smaller brand that's still growing. One, one thing that I've been very pleasantly surprised about, and, and I know Chris will, will comment on this as well, is how, how much we are seeing in terms of purchasing from our direct-to-consumer Shopify site, snack7days.com is is the site that you know we, we sell our, our products through. That's under the, the Shopify platform. You know, it, it, my hypothesis first was that more of our sales would actually be kind of more on the Walmart platform that is underlying Shopify, but you know. It's it's interesting that we're starting to see more and more people come directly onto our seven day site, and there's a multitude of reasons that. And one of the key areas that that Chris is really pioneering for us is when it comes to digital marketing, we want 
five people to our snack seven day site. And because we, we, we do ultimately own the, the shopping experience or control the shopping experience. And going back to your original point, the margin piece is, is really important for us. So, you know, we're, we're trying to figure that out, but I'm pleasantly surprised that the things that we are doing to retain consumers and get them to purchase directly on our site is working. And, and it seems like there is a higher receptivity of consumers now to purchase on individual sites. Whereas I think like a year, year and a half ago, they may not have. Whereas sure. they, they would have said, okay, it's on Amazon's platform. I trust Amazon. It's on one platform. I trust Amazon. The appetite for going direct has changed. And I think it's this last year, the proliferation of e-commerce and, and, and things like Shopify and ShopPay, people are starting to see those as household names as well. And so, you know, why we, when, when people buy through our site, they can buy via PayPal or ShopPay. And I think there is that trust as well. And consumers are more and more uh, becoming open to purchasing. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, other, right. the other point is we, like, we want to we want to be everywhere that the shopper is, right? And so I think for us, when we think about the business holistically, our margins are healthy both at retail and direct to consumer. And so one of the and one of the key distinctions is actually the margins are lower. If you if you think about gross margin, it's still lower in, in the consumer environment when you factor in shipping and all the other stuff right, that goes into it. The gross profit per unit is maybe a, maybe a little bit higher because again, you're getting a higher retail ring for it. And so while the percentage might be lower, the actual absolute profit number is a little higher. So sure. that, and, and that's the way that we've been, that's the way that we look at the e-commerce business, right? Because if you looked at the margins, you'd say like, actually the online margins are not accreted. But if you look at it on an absolute basis per percent, we are we are a little bit more profitable, but we're healthy and we're healthy both in retail uh, and online. And so we just want to be where wherever the consumer is, whether yeah. that's HEB pickup or Walmart pickup or that's the, that's the big point. And so if consumers are really loyal and they want to come to Snack7Days.com, amazing. Yeah. Uh, but if they want to pick up at HEB, like we we want to be everywhere. So you're the CEO and you're like. I mean, it's, it's on you that you have, you know, dollars in dollars out. And at the end of the day, you want to make, you know, the highest net profit possible, but I'm so curious because I have no idea how you'd actually track and attribute your marketing spend, right? Like, so you have your brand play and it might be like running radio in Austin, Texas. And therefore, are you looking for, are you kind of like doing a blended increase of, online sales from the Austin area, as well as retail outlets in, you know, the local HEB and Walmarts or like, how are you actually monitoring and tracking your marketing spend and attributing it to their, dif- these different channels, whether retail or online? So this is, uh, so as we do do some of this. Um, and again, it, we're, we're in early days. And so like, do we have a robust regression model that we're using to track our ROI? No, but we do do these analyses, and actually, we did do a radio program that hit the Houston area in January, and actually was driving to Snack7Days.com, and so we were able to get some insight from that. I mean, you saw a major uptick in traffic, major uptick in orders, all that stuff. But then the commercials also drove to retail. 
drove to 7-Eleven, they drove to Family Dollar. How we split that marketing spend, how do you attribute some of that to digital and some of that to, to retail? I think you probably, I, I don't, honestly, we haven't done, we haven't done that yet. Cause again, we're like in such early days, but it's a perfect question for Michelle because Michelle's background is actually <laughs> in, in consumer insights. And he, when we both worked at Unilever back in the day, was the person that did all of the ROIs on marketing studies just in general. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the world has changed a lot since then where predominantly the spend was still on TV, right? And I think, you know, it's still a, a big part of, big brands budget but you know obviously people's media consumption has changed fundamentally so you know i think to jim's point we're not running these marketing mix models right to figure out how to attribute every dollar of marketing spend to retail is online you know right now we are we are just trying to really really figure out how to capture the digital specific ROI and everything that we try to do in, in terms of communication and most of it is is on digital, right? We don't, we don't really do TV. We did a bit of radio and then we look at a few different ways to measure impact. You know, the radio campaign was more about driving awareness of our brand. So we look at things like our, our awareness data. We look at things like Google search uh, query and, and things of that nature. And then we look at our specific online digital sales to see what kind of direct impact some of the communication and the digital specific uh, things that we're doing drove to our, our digital sales. And then, you know, we, I would say we, we sort of eyeball what kind of impact we think it may have had overall on our, on our brand and our retail sales. So got it. One, we we're trying to be smart about it. One of the things that we really try to do is with this radio campaign, it was heavily regional. And, you know, as we continue to get more sophisticated in marketing, one of the things that, that we've looked at is, was at least there a, a regional, relatively regional increase, a lift that we're seeing from the campaign. So if we look at the retail data, so that way we can say, all right, clearly there was a lift, right? If it was significant. And so then we say, all right, well, there, there was definitely an impact, but is it an exact ROI? That's tough to determine. Sure. And yeah. you, you talk about Google queries. That's more of a brand play. Like then you're looking right. for branded searches of snack seven days or just seven days. Exactly. Exactly. And then, and then to see what kind of lift we're seeing on, on our actual digital conversion purpose, right? Yeah. So, so that's, you know, that, that's kind of where we're right now it is, it, it's the holy grail to really figure out how all of your marketing spend impacts different parts of the business. And now thinking about things in an omni-channel way. Yeah. It's not, it's still not easy, right? Sure. And, it's, and it's getting more, it's getting more complicated. It never was easy and it, you know, arguably never was correct. And now it's getting even more complicated, but thankfully we've got this direct conversion now, a lot of online data. And as people start, we, we're starting to see a little bit more actual data in terms of like any direct conversion to purchase. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I will add to that, you know, I think probably one of the main reasons that we're not 
necessarily tracking, re, you know, traditional brick and mortar retail marketing or advertising and digital advertising with respect to e-commerce is, you know, with respect to, to ROI, you never know exactly what kind of, of, of sales conversions conversions you're driving, you know, take, take the iHeartRadio campaign that we did a few months ago. You know, you get your C, you get a full analysis report following the campaign, you get your CPMs, et cetera. Do we know how many people we drove to purchase? Not exactly. But if you look at, you know, our, our Amazon campaigns, for example, we know that a little bit more than 50% of uh, sales are derived from our sponsored products and sponsored brand campaigns. So there's that direct ROI component that you're able to see very explicitly in the reporting on the e-commerce side. Yeah. 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 I think Amazon is, is unique in that sense. And now what, like 50% of searches or something will start on Amazon and that's very bottom of funnel. They'll, They'll know. And so your return on ad spend is very clear there, but yeah, I am curious about like how you approach say like the, the unit economics of or, or maybe like how you set a threshold on your cost per acquisition, because your, your product is almost a replenishable, right? Like the average order value might be like 15 to $25 or something. So you're also anticipating multiple orders over the course of a lifetime, but how are you approaching that in terms of like where you're happy or where you're comfortable spending, even if you're acquiring a first customer at a loss in particular, if it's not a customer that you can follow up with directly, like say again, Walmart or, or Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting question. Again, we don't have a a precise answer for you, but we did recently run a customer lifetime analysis and we determined that over the prior six months, approximately one in three of our e-commerce customers are coming back to purchase again. So Taking that into account, you know, in addition to just the, the typical return on ad spend that we look for, which is, you know, somewhere in the three to four range, we, we definitely go a little bit further. We're, we're willing to spend a little bit more given that we know that our product tends to have a higher return rate versus others within our category. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually just to, to add that's, that's exactly it. So we, we try to, we try to triangulate what we think the repeat rate will be for, for our items. And to Chris's point, you know, we've got data points through our direct commerce sites, but I believe Amazon allows us to, to get some idea of, of repeat. We also know on the retail side, kind of what our, our repeat is. And so we try to triangulate that and say, all right, what is, is one, one in three, I think is, is, kind of what the average is across those data points. And then we'll use to determine, and based on one's purchase cycle, which in this category is pretty fast, what we think acquisition cost would be. So we sort of back and, and based on that, we determine what level of spend we think we're comfortable with. Got it. Right. And, and, and that, that piece will become more and more important, um, bigger and more sophisticated. Right now, we also, as a growth company, and given the momentum we're seeing, we also don't want to fixate too much. We want to be responsible, but we, want, we don't want to fixate too much for you know, specific customer lifetime value acquisition costs. Why? You know, we, we definitely want to just try to 
get new consumers, gain awareness, grow our brand. And at a certain point, we will start being a little bit more cautious, I'd say, of, of the, the way we, we spend. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask Jim earlier because, it, you know, you, you said you were a few years ago, 2 million, now you're 40 million. And there's, you know, who knows that if, if like Eastern Europe is any indication, there's a, a huge ceiling ahead. How are you actually kind of like extending that brand? And, and I guess where you're seeing opportunities in terms of digital channels to drive awareness and acquisition. I'm curious about your strategies now. Yeah. So obviously we've, I don't know if you've had a chance to, you, I know you have snooped around a little bit, but we, you know, we are continuing to focus our attention in places like obviously Instagram. We have, we have a Facebook page. We all, all that stuff. So from an above the line awareness, so let me let me also take a step back. So we just talked about TV a little bit before. Because we are looking to generate broad, more broad-based awareness, our awareness is somewhere between 15 and 20% in the US right now, right? And so you look at our competitors, Hostess, Little Debbie, 80, 90, you know, Hostess might, might be close to 100. And so if you look at the funnel, obviously it's awareness, trial, and repeat. And so it's funny because even though digital marketing absolutely, you know, can be higher ROI and everything, like I actually believe that the seven days brand, the seven days brand might actually be a good brand to advertise like in, in a Super Bowl commercial. <laughs> we are looking for that broad-based awareness driving type of activity. And so our in, 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 to be frank, our, our marketing budget is limited. So we, you know, we can't go and spend $600,000 on a, on a broad-based Facebook campaign, but we can be more targeted in our approach. And I know that Chris has done uh, quite a bit of geo-targeting and that sort of stuff. So we're, we're, we're looking, we're, we, we look at it practically today to try to pick the places where we know, because this is, this is when the seven days brand first launched, there was, you know, I, I think there was uh, an optimism that we would have a certain amount of distribution when we launched, right? That didn't necessarily materialize. And so for us, you know, we want to make sure that we have distribution in enough physical locations in an, right, when we're talking to a consumer so that they can actually go and, and purchase our product. Now, you can do it online now, however, it is a relatively big ask to get somebody to buy 24 croissants for 30 whatever it is, right? And so we want whoever we're communicating with to be able to purchase it both online or uh, in store, right? And so like that's one of the things that goes into our analysis of where are we going to spend this money? Um, yeah. So Chris, yeah. Yeah, and, and just to build on, on what Jim said, you know, we are, as he pointed out, definitely relative, relatively limited budget versus maybe some of the, again, that some of the household pastry brands that you're aware of. So we, we really tend to start bottom of funnel. We've seen a lot of success with our, our Facebook ads. So dynamic product catalog ads, for example, focusing on, on people that have already interacted with our brand, whether it be, you know, visiting our website, adding to cart, et cetera. And, you know, just, just delivering them uh, a simple product catalog ad with our, our product on a white background, 
that that has really been very successful for us recently. It has, has proven to be high ROI versus a lot of the other testing that we've done. And we've also had a lot of success with prospecting campaigns. So, you know, targeting lookalike audiences, people that have similar interests and behaviors to some of our, our current and uh, past customers. So, Have you been impacted at all by like the iOS 14 updates, for example, like challenges with targeting or changes to third-party Not, not yet. I, I know, I, and, and it's definitely something that we're a little bit concerned about, but we haven't, we haven't had any issues with that yet. I, I'm told in the coming months, and, and again, you might have a better sense of this, but uh, I'm told in the coming months, that's going to be going to be a factor for sure. So we're just trying to collect and, and analyze all of the data that we've been able to generate to date and, you know, utilize that to, to inform whatever targeting decisions we make, you know, once that does take effect. Yeah. I I mean, I think a brand like yours is well positioned far more, far better perhaps than others. If you have so many different channels and and touch points that you're not reliant on one ad strategy or one channel uh, for sales. So I think that that's a good thing, but yeah, the challenges in Vishal, you mentioned, you know, like seven to 10 years. And I saw that that was like a McKinsey study, right? So like in terms of all retail e-commerce is now maybe like 30% or at least last year during the pandemic, it right. spiked up to 30% of all sales came online. Who knows how that'll change as things normalize a little bit. But yeah. one of the other things with COVID is maybe this notion that health health is a big factor in in just general like susceptibility to COVID and, and comorbidity and whatever. And I'm wondering if if you guys have had this as a challenge in terms of this like health movement and maybe more of an awareness of eating healthy and that it, it's like, oh, well, a, a croissant might not be as healthy. I should eat like a banana or apple. Is this something that's impacted you at all? You, you know, what I, what I will say is that it's been interesting. So last year, there was a huge push towards these comfort foods. Mm. And so during COVID, this category actually grew pretty significantly uh-huh. for this category that we, that we planned. You know, I think broader, I mean, it is something that, you know, we're, we're definitely thinking about. And I think certain channels more than others. Interestingly, interestingly, within the category, I would argue that our product is is better for you than a donut or a cupcake, right? So, you know, it, it's all relative. And if people are looking for that craving, and I don't think that's really going to go away. I think they're looking for something a little bit sweet, but then they go to the shelf and they don't want to necessarily buy a cupcake they may look at our item and say hey this is you know this 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 will be the craving that this will satisfy the craving that i have but i don't want to necessarily spend the calories and and additional sugar on on something like a cupcake yeah but you know but it is interesting this category has been quite resilient and i i am a betting man (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and I would bet that this will continue. This will continue. Things will change a little bit in terms of, I think, how 
new innovation comes to life and, and what people communicate. But I think there's always going to be a, a desire for, for this type of product. I, and more, I would agree. And more, more broadly, there was another interesting benefit that, you know, I think we early on thought might be the case and I think has played out. Uh, again, there's no way to perfectly tease this out, but <clears throat> packaged is not a dirty word anymore, right? Like it used to be. People used to think, oh, long shelf life, must be a lot of preservatives in there and this and that and the other thing. But people trust packaged goods because they know that they haven't been touched by the human hand, mm. right? So, so we saw we saw that benefit very clearly play out when we looked at the convenience channel, where trips were down, but sales of our items were up on a per unit uh, per point of distribution basis because not as many people were going into the donut case to grab a donut, right? Because I think you know that that is quite literally a higher touch environment. People just wanted things that they knew was never touched before. So, and to build really quickly on Vishal's prior point, I think within food, what you're seeing is a bit of a bifurcation, right? You have people going to healthy and people going to indulgent and maybe skipping over the stuff that's kind of in between. And so, you know, I, I, I would say that we're on the healthier side of indulgent, but, you know, that I think broader trend is playing has been playing out for a while uh, yeah, one, one more thing I'll, I'll add to that point in, in, in a very specific example and also a plug for one of our new items one of the things that we're seeing in this category is a a change and, and not just this category but a lot of probably other categories that are similar adjacent like like a cookies Consumer or manufacturers are moving more towards items that are, are miniature. So you got your minis, you got your your bite size, and and that you know continues to be a big part of of that shelf. And we have our, our new mini croissants that'll be launched at, at Walmart very soon, and, and we've got some distribution and convenience as a, as a grab and go, but or one of our multi packs, and and you know th this is having worked in partnership with, with the retailers. So they're thinking about it. And this is how they're thinking that this category will evolve when it comes to healthy, quote unquote, and, and better for you, right? Sure, so, still satisfying the craving. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the piece there is, is there is a, a portionability, right? There's a, a guilt-free component there that I think in these higher indulgent categories, that's the way this healthy, better for you trend is manifesting. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks, thanks guys for sharing so much insight and, and your, your takeaways because I've learned a lot. I was wondering if you, if you had one takeaway in your time in growing omni-channel, you know, Amazon, Walmart, all these grocery stores, and then growing direct-to-consumer brand. What's like the one thing that you might recommend to somebody also pursuing an omni-channel that might be most helpful in moving the needle, say, you know, 2 million to 40 million in a few years. But yeah, I love your, your biggest takeaway. Yeah, I mean, th this is something that I think about a lot and I look at very often is, is product reviews. I think, I think you have to be relentless in pursuit of 
a good consumer experience, right? There, when, when someone's reviewing a product, there's multiple elements. Ultimately, it's it's for especially a food item, it's it's how the product tastes and, and their satisfaction with the product, especially relative to expectations. If if you start seeing a lot of poor reviews, which you know fundamentally is people's perception and, and experience with the product, that's not great. You 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 want to be, you know four and a half, five stars on, on, on Amazon reviews. I, I think people really look at that when, when making their decision, their final decision on, on trust. And you may get attracted to the fact that it's a croissant. But if you have poor reviews, then I think that can for a lot of people from that final conversion. So, yeah, I mean, I think you, got, you have to be relentless about reviews. And again, some of it is a function of, of the product itself, right? And we're, we're lucky enough that we have a really good product. And I think as we went on Omnichannel, started getting people's organic reviews, we got even more confident in the product that we were selling. But I think, yeah, that, that to me is like, yeah, that, that'll make or break you. I would say more, much, you know, more, more macro when you look at growing a total brand, which is really what we're asking about. One of the, one of the uh, secrets to success is also the same answer, which is being relentless, but it's being willing to accept that not everybody is going to say yes as you're trying to grow a brand just in general, because if you let that get you down, it's going to, it eventually will break you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and we've reached different stepping stones in our um, growth and then we've plateaued and then, you know, it's like, oh, is this the... And I, we have a long, long runway ahead of us, but I think we know that we're going to hear no between now and, and then, and we accept that. And, but we are relentless in our pursuit of getting this brand out there into as many locations as possible and getting as many people awareness, uh, getting as many people aware of the brand as possible. So yeah, very, very related answer that it's just integral belief in the product. And then it's almost your duty, your mission to get it in front exactly. of as many people as possible. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining. I learned a lot. I really appreciate it. Snack7days.com is the best place to learn. Snack7days.com. That's right. Yep. Thank you for the plug. And that's the episode for today. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. We love you for it. If you found anything valuable at all or want to share your feedback, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also just drop us a line to hello at cartoverflow.com. We'd love to hear your feedback or suggestions so we can cover it in a future episode. All right. See you next time.